Today, with the help of the Almighty, we will wrap up our study of this subject, the 12th principle of Maimonides, of Rambam's 13 principles of faith, the subject of Messiah. And we're going to end it with a Messiah panoply, with a medley of interesting and perhaps even tangential subjects that relate to Messiah. We're going to discuss six different subjects. Each really can be a standalone podcast on its own, maybe more than one, but we're going to try to lump it all together uh, for a very good reason. The reason is that it's very hard to find authoritative sources about these ideas, and I don't want to lapse into irresponsible speculation, so we're going to cover them briefly, and that will help round out our understanding of this subject. We're not going to go too deep into any of them. We're going to scour them, we're going to survey them, so we have a basic understanding of them, but we're going to acknowledge that there's a lot more there, and we're only briefly touching these six subjects. And they are, number one, the idea of Messiah ben Joseph. Our status tells us that there are two Messiahs, Messiah ben David from the house of David and Messiah ben Joseph, a descendant of Joseph. What's that all about? We have the idea of the war of Gog and Magog. The sources tell us that there's going to be this apocalyptic war that is associated with Messiah. Gog and Magog, what's that all about? We're going to briefly discuss Elijah's role in Messiah. We're going to briefly discuss the resurrection of the dead that is associated with Messiah. We're going to briefly discuss the concept of the restoration of the Sanhedrin, of the Supreme Court and how that relates to Messiah. And finally, we will end off with a brief discussion of the relationship between the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel, and Messiah. We're going to start with a most mysterious subject, and that is the idea of Messiah ben Joseph. In the Rambam, of course, the Rambam is the author of the 13 Principles, the idea of Messiah ben Joseph is not featured at all, not in the description of this principle, not in Mishnah Torah, and in general, there is very limited treatment in all of the literature about this subject. The sources that we do have on Messiah ben Joseph are very cryptic, very obscure, are very arcane. According to the sources, there are two messiahs, Messiah ben David, a messiah from the house of David, from the Davidic line, from the tribe of Judah. And that's the messiah that we've been talking about all along. And there's also a second messiah, Messiah ben Joseph, not from the tribe of Judah, rather from the tribe of Joseph. Jacob had 12 sons, and two of them were kings. Judah, he's a king, he's compared to a lion, he always goes first. In the encampments of the nation, the tribe of Judah goes first. In the conquest of Canaan, Judah went first. And the kings, starting with David, they come from Judah. But of course, we know that Joseph was also a king in the story of the tribes. Of course, we know the story. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt and quite improbably rose to become the viceroy of Egypt. Joseph also is a king. And these two kings... Joseph and Judah, they had a very dramatic showdown after Joseph took Benjamin as a slave. He planted, we know the story, he planted some incriminating evidence in Benjamin's satchel. And then Judah approaches and he excoriates, and this is the beginning of Parshas Vayigash. The Midrash connects that whole encounter to the two kings, to Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph. And they're circling each other and they're combating with each other. And everyone else is a spectator. Judah and Joseph were rivals at the time. But the messiahs of Judah and Joseph, Messiah ben David, Messiah ben Joseph, are going to be complementary. Both Judah and Joseph were kings, and both beget messiahs. Of course, when we think of messiahs, the, the classic messiah, that's ben David, the heir of David from the tribe of Judah. But the sources tell us that there is another messiah, Another king, not from Judah, but from Joseph, Messiah ben Joseph. Now, part of the central ideas of Messiah 
is that they are at the forefront. They are at the vanguard. They're the spearhead to prepare the nation and really the whole world for the era of Messiah, for the fixing of humanity. We see both with Joseph and with Judah that they take roles as preparing the rest of the nation for the challenges and conflicts ahead. The Jewish people were destined to go down to Egypt. Joseph preceded his brothers by 22 years. And on a spiritual level, he's laying the spiritual groundwork. He's preparing the land for the nation. In chapter 46 of Genesis, once Jacob's on his way, he sends one of his sons, he sends Judah, this is chapter 46, verse 28, he sends Judah ahead to go prepare, to establish a home, to establish an academy. And this is emblematic of Messiah, to pave the way, to prepare, first for the nation, and subsequently for all of humanity, to prepare the grounds for the perfected time of Messiah. Now, what is this idea of Messiah ben Joseph? How does it relate to the other Messiah, Messiah ben David? What do we know about Messiah ben Joseph? The truth is, we know very little. It is featured in the Talmud. It is discussed in the literature. But again, the sources are few and quite mysterious. But if we're going to study Messiah, we have to cover it, at least to get the basic contours. The Talmud mentions Messiah ben Joseph once, in a very unusual context. The Talmud in the book of Sukkah on page 52a, it's discussing the imperative to separate the sexes by the festival celebrations in the temple, and it mentions an event foretold by the prophet Zechariah. He's talking about a future eulogy. And this eulogy is going to be attended by the entire nation. But every family is separate. And the men are separate and the women are separate. And the Talmud says, well, in this future eulogy, this is at a time when the Yetzirah, the evil creation, is already eliminated. And this is a eulogy. And nevertheless, the men and the women are separated. And in the temple, when there is a celebration, and there is a risk of frivolity, and the eight are still alive and well, if in that future eulogy there is separation of the sexes, certainly in the temple, in the joy and jubilation of the festival, there must be separation of the sexes. That's the context of this subject. What is this eulogy all about? What's the nature of this eulogy? So one opinion in the Talmud tells us that this is the eulogy on Messiah ben Joseph. He will be killed. Rashi tells us he's going to die in the war of Gog and Magog. And this eulogy will feature the entire nation separated by gender. That's the context of the Talmud's Treatment of Messiah ben Joseph. Continues the Talmud. The other Messiah, the Almighty will give him the same offer he gave to Solomon. Ask anything for me and I will give it to you. And when the other Messiah, Messiah ben David, sees the death, the killing of Messiah ben Joseph, he will say, God, all I want is life. There are a dearth of sources as to what exactly Messiah ben Joseph does in his lifetime. The sources are only about his demise, his death, the national eulogy, Messiah ben David's reaction to his death. It raises a lot of questions. And it seems like the death of Messiah ben Joseph is predetermined. And it's so traumatic, and the whole nation is by this eulogy. And the other Messiah, Messiah ben David, when he sees this death, he tells God, all I want is life. 
Obviously, the subject of Messiah ben Joseph is a great mystery. I will note, we do get some clues from this Talmud as to when exactly this all plays out. Rashi tells us that the death of Messiah ben Joseph will happen during the war of Gog and Magog. So we already have a Messiah, and then we have Gog and Magog, and both Messiahs are existing simultaneously. But the context is the separation of the sexes in the temple. And the Talmud tells us that they were separated in this eulogy, which comes after the elimination of the Sahara. And the Talmud deduces, well, if in this future eulogy, after the Yetzirah has been eliminated, there is the separation of the sexes, then certainly now, prior to the elimination of the Yetzirah, there should be separation. So evidently, by the time of the death of Messiah ben Joseph, the Yetzirah, which we have learned part of the Messianic process is the elimination of the Yetzirah, at that time, the Yetzirah will have already been eliminated. But that's what the Talmud tells us about this subject. We don't really know much more from the Talmud. But other sources give us some more insight. The Maharsha commentary on that piece of Talmud gives us a helpful primer on the subject of Messiah, Messiah ben Joseph, that is. He tells us that in the beginning of the Messianic era, Messiah ben Joseph will arise to save Israel. And he quotes a verse in Scripture that compares Joseph to a fire and Esav to hay, to combustible hay. And a little spark of Joseph will consume, will destroy the hay, the combustible hay, the the highly flammable hay of Esav. And there's a principle that only Joseph and his descendants have the ability to triumph over Esav. You recall, after Jacob fled from his brother, got married, had a bunch of kids, right after the birth of Joseph, Jacob starts the process to go back home. And Rashi there tells us, and the sources repeat this often, The only way for Jacob to overcome Esau is with the power, with the forces of Joseph. We know, we have learned, that the elimination of Esau is a central part of Messiah. When the nation ascends to Mount Seir and there's this battle against Esau, only then God will be one and his name will be one. The final conflict before Messiah is with Esau. The elimination of Esau can be done only via Joseph and his descendants. And thus, the role of Messiah ben Joseph is to eliminate Esau. And of course, the heir of Esau is Amalek. And we have already seen that Amalek is really the final hump that we must overcome before Messiah. So long as Amalek exists, the throne of God, so to speak, is incomplete. So we see how the beginning of Messiah is done by Messiah ben Joseph. But that does not end the story. The triumph over Esau will prompt an escalation and other nations will congregate in Jerusalem. And that war, that subsequent war, is the war of Gog and Magog. And in that war, Messiah ben Joseph will die. And the completion of the redemption will be done, we are told, by Messiah ben David. So that's the context of this idea of Messiah ben Joseph. Now, the sources do maintain that the future is still in flux, meaning it's still up to us. We've seen this idea many times in our study that Messiah can come in all sorts of different ways, and the harsher ways are avoidable. If we repent, we'll have a better version of Messiah. And apparently, this idea that there's going to be the, this terrible death of this ter- of this great heroic figure, Messiah ben Joseph, 
and everyone's going to mourn and, and bewail and we'll have this national eulogy, that too, we are told, can be avoided. So, for example, Sa'ad Yagon, the great leader of the Jewish people in the Geonic period, in his magisterial work, Emunos Fideos 8.6, he tells us that if we don't repent, if we don't choose the more pleasant version of Messiah, then we will be subject to the trauma and to the death of Messiah ben Joseph. However, if we do repent, if we choose a better version of Messiah, then it will be more pleasant. And we'll have both Messiah ben Joseph and Messiah ben David. And there'll be a more robust Messiah, more pleasant Messiah. I found a similar idea in the commentary of Orachayim to the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17. This is the blessings of Bilam, which we have learned are foretelling about the Messiah. The verse says that a star will emerge from Jacob and a scepter, a staff, will rise from Israel. Bilaam is forecasting, is foretelling, is prophesying about the rise of Messiah. And Messiah is compared to a star, just like a star covers the whole horizon, so too Messiah will cover the whole world, and the ingathering of the Jews from all over will be achieved. And just as a shooting star is a departure from nature, it's miraculous, so too Messiah will be miraculous and nature-defying. And just as a shooting star is seen by all, so too Messiah will be universally recognized. But the Arachim notes that this verse, it refers to two names of Jacob. A star will emerge from Jacob, and a scepter will rise from Israel. Jacob has two identities. He has Jacob and he has Israel. And these refer to different states of Jacob. There's the loftier state, and that is the name of Israel. And then there is the lowlier name, and that is that of Jacob. And when the verse says that a star will emerge from Jacob, that's a reference to Messiah ben David. And when the verse refers to a scepter rising amongst Israel, that is a reference to Messiah ben Joseph. And this is the choices that we have. If we are lowly, relatively lowly, like Jacob, then we will only have Messiah ben David, only have a star. And Messiah ben Joseph, well, he will have to die in this war. But if we are all righteous, if we embody the name Israel and all that it entails, then we'll have both. Even Messiah bin Joseph will rise. He will triumph over his enemies and he won't be killed. And the Arachim tells us that there's actually a, a special prayer designated to pray that Messiah ben Joseph does not perish in this war. So we're told that Messiah comes in, in two flavors. There's Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben David. And Messiah ben Joseph's role is to destroy Amalek, to destroy the firepower of Asaph, just as Joseph is the flame that consumes the hay of Asaph. And we already have an example of what this looks like. In Exodus chapter 17, the nation wages war against Amalek. And who does the battle? Who leads the Jews in war? It's Joshua. Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim, the son of Joseph. Why was Joshua selected? Because he has the flame of Joseph within him, and that is the special power needed to overcome Amalek, to overcome Asaph. And the Ramban, in his commentary to Exodus chapter 17, tells us that the battle against Amalek is emblematic of the battle against 
Amalek in the future, whatever Moshe and Joshua did, then Elijah and Messiah ben Joseph will do in the future. Messiah ben Joseph will finish what Joshua began. That's the destiny of Messiah ben Joseph, to defeat Amalek, to defeat Esav. But the finishing touches of Messiah will be done by the other Messiah, Messiah ben David. And again, the subject is still mysterious. And there are a lot of very advanced esoteric commentaries on these two Messiahs. There are sources that talk about how Joseph, he was coronated by the non-Jews, by the Egyptians. So his role, so to speak, is more amplified outside. Whereas Judah, he's more inward-facing. And then there's the idea that Messiah will be the product of multiple transformations. There's the, the physical liberation that's done by Joseph. Just as Joseph fed the Jewish nation, fed the whole world physically in Egypt. And then there's the spiritual liberation, and that's done by the other Messiah. And even in the spiritual realm, there is the overcoming of base sins, of temptation, and that was done by Joseph, and that will be effectuated on a national scale by Messiah ben Joseph. David, we know his hiccups were specifically in those areas. And therefore, David's not able to lead the nation, so to speak, in that area. But David symbolized humility. And thus, the second tier, the second stage of transformation, of spiritual transformation, must be done by David, and that's the overcoming of hubris and haughtiness, just as David did, Messiah Ben David will do as well. The objective of Messiah in general is to transform the nation and subsequently the world to become more spiritually elevated and refined. And there will be a need, we are told, to have two tiers of transformation, physical and spiritual, and even within the spiritual realm, the more physical and base and coarse sins that we are susceptible to. That will be done by Messiah ben Joseph. He will lead us to overcome that, and Messiah ben David will lead us to overcome the more spiritual sins like haughtiness and arrogance. And once we have complete spiritual perfection, that is the definition of Messiah. So these are some of the ideas that are found in the literature. There's a lot more. We're just touching on the subject. And I will remind you, the subject of Messiah ben Joseph, really, truthfully, the whole subject of Messiah is and remains a mystery. The next idea, it's related, of course, is the idea of the Gog and Magog apocalypse. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, chapter 39, the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, there is a prophecy about an apocalyptic war against Gog and Magog. Gog, Rashi tells us, that's the name of a leader, a king. And Magog is the name of the nation. And this is a very severe war, and it's part of the Messianic era. Apparently, this is after the defeat of Esau and Amalek, after Messiah ben Joseph pulls off the impossible and defeats Esau. After the elimination of the Yitzharag and the context of the Talmud, by the separation of the sexes, that is when the war against Gog and Magog will happen. Now, the Rambam does mention this war very briefly. He doesn't mention Messiah ben Joseph at all, but he does mention this war very briefly. This is in chapter 12 of the Laws of Kings, Law Number 2. And if you read it, he gives it some very interesting positioning. He frames it in a very interesting way. He says that it appears, it seems, from the simple interpretation of the prophets, that in the beginning of the days of Messiah, there will be the war of Gog and Magog. If you just read the prophets simply, it indicates that at the beginning of Messiah, there will be this war. Now, he doesn't say definitively that this war will necessarily happen, 
He just says that that's how it appears from the simple interpretation of the prophets. And then he tells us that before the war, a prophet will come. He doesn't identify the nature or the identity of this, of this prophet. A prophet will come and straighten Israel and prepare their hearts. He doesn't present these two ideas as two independent elements. He says that there's the, the appearance, or the, the simple interpretation is that there's this war and that there's the prophet that comes to straighten the hearts of the nation. It's not clear if he is connecting them on a principle level or not. But in general, we know very little about this war. What is it? What role does it have to play in the Messianic transformation? We are told, we saw in the Maharshan, the brief primer, that there's going to be multiple wars against Esau, and then after that war, there's the escalation against many other nations, and that's the war of Gog and Magog, but everything about it is fuzzy. There's a very good reason for this. The Malbim, one of the great commentators on Scripture, he says something very insightful in his commentary to Numbers 11, verse 26. The verse is talking about the rogue prophets, Eldad and Medad, and they were prophesying in the camp, and there is an opinion that says that the nature of their prophecy was about the war against Gog and Magog. And the Malbim says something very interesting. He says that Moshe, he was the greatest prophet, but there were some things that were hidden from Moshe. And everything that relates to the subject of Moshe entering the land, which of course he was barred from doing, all that was hidden from Moshe. Including the contingency plan of the war of Gog and Magog. Had Moshe entered the land, there would be no war of Gog and Magog. And thus, the war which is related to Moshe entering the land, that was hidden from Moshe. And Moshe, he is the father of all prophets, meaning that every other prophet stems, to a certain extent, from Moshe. They draw their prophecy from the funnel, so to speak, of Moshe. And thus, if something was not conveyed to Moshe, all other prophets are going to struggle with it. And they're going to have a hard time deciphering it. And that's why the subject of Gog and Magog, it's not well fleshed out in the prophets. The Ram says, well, it seems like, from the simple interpretation of the prophets, that there is this war. He's very hesitating in in trying to take an authoritative, definitive position. And now it makes sense. The subject is not well-defined and well-explicated in the prophets. And perhaps this is really a general rule about Messiah in general. We've seen that the prophecy of Messiah, there is a lot of ambiguity. It's very obscured and obfuscated. And that's by design, of course. But maybe this too, this principle too, can be extended to the general subject of Messiah. So if we don't know a lot about the war of Gog and Magog, that is to be understood. What we are told about it is that it's a highly unpleasant war. And we want no part of it. And we want to avoid it at all costs. And the Talmud uses it as a shorthand for the worst possible conflict. And the Talmud tells us that there are perhaps ways that we can avoid it. If someone fulfills the midst of having three festive meals on Shabbos, they will be saved from three punishments, from the birth pains of Mashiach, from the judgment of Gehenom, and from the war of Gog and Magog. And again, we don't know much about it, but our sages tell us that this war is scheduled for the festival of Sukkot of Sukkot, specifically 
on the last day of Sukkot, Hoshana Rabbah. On that day, we have a special prayer where we ask God, save us, three hours, save us. And our Sadists tell us that this is because this apocalyptic war will only last for three hours. And the way we protect ourselves is by remaining in the sukkah, being cocooned by the clouds of glory. And this is hinted to in the verse in, in Psalms 27. God will shelter me in his sukkah on an evil day. There's an evil day, this war, and God will protect me by, by being housed in his sukkah. And we pray, grant us protection, raise us up high on the rock. But again, I will remind you, the sources are unclear. And there are many contradictions in the sources. And even the Rambam does not take a definitive stance. What it is remains a mystery. Now, we are told there are there's a war against Asaph. There's a war of Gog and Magog. The Midrash tells us that there are also three wars against Ishmael. One war in a forest, one war in a sea, and one in a great city. And from this place, or from this war, the son of David, the scion of David, will sprout. And again, what that means, I don't know, but it's part of a series of wars that are central to the Messianic era. The next subject I want to discuss is that of Elijah. The Talmud tells us that Elijah will precede Messiah. The day before Messiah comes, Elijah will come and will tell us good tidings about Messiah. Now, the Rambam does mention this as well. He tells us that there will be a prophet that will come to straighten out Israel and to prepare their hearts. And he quotes the verse in Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I am sending you Elijah. So even though he doesn't identify the prophet, the verse that he quotes does. And Elijah's role is not to purify the impure, to render impure the pure, to disqualify and invalidate people that were considered to be qualified, or to qualify those who were considered to be unqualified. That's not what he needs to do. His role is to foster peace in the world and to restore the hearts of the fathers and the sons and vice versa. And then the Rambam says, there are some of the sages who tell us that before Messiah comes, Elijah will come. Rambam seems to at least leave the possibility that there's a different prophet who will arise aside from Elijah. And then he tells us, in all these matters and everything that relates to this, no person actually knows what will happen until it will happen. And even amongst the prophets, these matters were hidden. And even amongst the sages, we have no tradition. Therefore, there's a lot of dispute and uncertainty and conflict about this. Now, what role does Elijah play in Messiah? So we're told that Ramon tells us to, to foster peace and to restore harmony. We are also told in the sources that there is a central need for peace and harmony before Messiah can come. It's nice to have peace, it's nice to have harmony, but why is that connected at all to Messiah? So we're told that just as the Jewish people, by the Exodus, we had two leaders, we had Moshe and we had Aaron, and only if we had them two together could we have had everything that we got in the aftermath of the Exodus. Only Moshe could ascend to heaven, get the Torah, and bring it down to us. 
but only Aaron can prepare us to be a receptacle for Torah. He was the one who loved people, who loved humanity, and who brought people close to Torah, who prepared them to be recipients of Torah. The Jewish people before Sinai, we were united as one, like one person with one heart. And that is the only way we could have accepted the Torah. And thus, Moshe without Aaron, or Aaron without Moshe, there can be no Torah. Similarly, Messiah must also have the Moshe and the Aaron elements. And Elijah, he is Aaron, because he will prepare the hearts, he will prepare the ground, he will prepare the peace that is needed for the mosaic role, so to speak, of Messiah. It's probably not a coincidence that according to our tradition, Elijah is none other than Pinchas, who is a grandson of Aaron. To have redemption, we need to have both Moshe and Aaron, both Elijah and Messiah. Now, there's a lot to talk about this subject, and as I mentioned, each one of these subjects can be its own discussion. But the sources maintain that Elijah may be resistant to do his job. And Jacob is going to force Elijah to do his job to prepare the ground for Messiah, to herald the arrival of Messiah. And the sources note that in five places, the word Elijah in Scripture is spelled without one letter, the letter Vav. And correspondingly, in five places in Scripture, the word Jacob, Yaakov, is spelled with an extra Vav. And the way this is explained is that Jacob seized, he took hostage the letter Vav of Elijah in order to compel Elijah to herald the Messiah. I did record a Parsha podcast a few months ago titled Hostage Letter about this whole idea, very interesting and very esoteric idea of Jacob and Elijah and this letter that Jacob takes hostage to compel Elijah to do his job, fulfill his role in heralding Messiah. Now, there is another subject I want to discuss. This is the force we talked about, Messiah ben Joseph, Gog and Magog, Elijah. And now, resurrection. So the truth is, we are in the 12th principle of the 13 principles. The last principle, the 13th principle, is about the resurrection of the dead. When does this happen? So, of course, we'll discuss it, please God, at great length when we talk about the 13th principle. But the sources tell us that there will be a first resurrection in the times of Messiah. The Midrash tells us that during the times of Messiah, the people who are interred in the land of Israel and the righteous who are interred outside of the land of Israel, they will be resurrected. They will come back alive. And they will get to participate and enjoy the days of Messiah. The Midrash also tells us that this is why Jacob was so desirous to be buried in the land, because it's much better to be buried inside the land of Israel than to be buried outside of the land. And in fact, we're told that the dead in the diaspora outside the land of Israel, they will need to roll through subterranean tunnels, which apparently is very unpleasant, until they can ascend, they can be resurrected in the land of Israel. So again, there is very little sources about the resurrection in the times of Messiah, but it is important to mention that part of the Messianic era includes the first resurrection that will happen. The next subject that is important to talk about is the restoration 
of the Sanhedrin. Moshe, in the book of Numbers, he established a court of 71 elders. And to be part of this court, you have to receive ordination that is done by Moshe or by someone who was ordained by Moshe or by someone who was ordained by someone who was ordained, etc., all the way back to Moshe. In order to be part of this Sanhedrin, you have to have what's called smicha, ordination. And that is an uninterrupted line going back to Moshe. And it's clear from the sources that it is imperative in the times of Messiah to have a Sanhedrin. The problem is, is that the Sanhedrin, although it did last for many, many, many centuries, Sanhedrin disbanded in the 4th century of the Common Era, the Sanhedrin dissolved. And there was a need to restore it in the times of Messiah. How can we restore the Sanhedrin without restoring smicha, which is the ordination, which is a necessary prerequisite to be part of the Sanhedrin? So maybe the easy answer is, well, if there was resurrection, if Joshua comes back, if Moshe comes back, then they can confer this on candidate members of the Sanhedrin. But there is a very important citation in Rambam, in the Laws of Sanhedrin, chapter 11, verse, not verse, law number 4, where he clarifies a way to reinstitute, to restore both smicha, ordination, and the Sanhedrin. The first thing it tells us is if you only have one person in the land who has smicha, then they can confer this smicha to others. They can take 70 elders and do it all at once, or one after another. And then they can recompose the Sanhedrin and that Sanhedrin is legit and can confer smicha and can institute and govern all the laws that are done by the Sanhedrin. But what if we don't have even one person who has smicha? Now, by the way, if Elijah comes, then we have a person who has smicha. Elijah himself can restore the Sanhedrin. But what if there is no one around who has smicha? The Ramam says, if all the sages in the land of Israel, if they unanimously agree to appoint judges and to grant them, to confer upon them smicha, then behold, those people are considered as if they have smicha. Which seems to imply that the entirety of all the sages of the land, that body is the equivalent of someone who has smicha, and thus, just as a person who has smicha can confer smicha, the entire body of the sages of Israel, that body can confer smicha. But of course, it's very hard to get agreement, and that's why it's very sad that we lost this office of smicha. Now, there have been some modern attempts to follow the path of Maimonides of Rambam, most notably in the 16th century in Tzfat, in northern Israel, there was one of the greatest collection of sages of all time. At the same time, you have the Arizal and Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. And there was an effort to restore Smicha based upon this Rambam, and there were four people who did receive smicha, but that ended when the sages of Jerusalem protested and said, wait, wait a minute. The Ramam says all the sages of the land have to agree, and we don't agree. And thus, the nascent restoration of smicha and the Sanhedrin ended with only four recipients of smicha. Now, this is intimately 
connected with the subject of Messiah. And the Talmud itself tells us that there is a parallel between the exile of the Divine Presence and the exile of the Sanhedrin. The Divine Presence didn't leave the Temple instantly and just disappear. It progressively left the Temple. It tells us it used to be in the Kaporas, in the cover of the Ark. And then it went to the cherub, and from one cherub to the other cherub. And from place to place, until gradually it left the temple, it went different parts of the courtyard, to the altar, to the roof, to the wall around the city, to the city itself, to the mountain, i.e. Mount Olives, to the wilderness, and then it went to heaven. Ten stages from where it was until it was lost. And correspondingly, the Talmud tells us, the Sanhedrin also underwent ten exiles. They were in the marble chamber, and with a different part of Jerusalem, and then a different part of Jerusalem, and then to Yavne, and then to Usha, and then back to Yavne, and then back to Usha, and then to Shfaram, and then to Beit Sharim, Tsipori, and to Tiberias. And from Tiberias, the Sanhedrin was annulled, was dissolved. And the Talmud tells us that the restoration it's going to happen in reverse order. Meaning that from there, meaning from Tiberias, that is where the redemption will begin from. And thus the sources maintain that Messiah will arise in the land of Israel, specifically in Tiberias, we're told, and then will emanate outwardly to the rest of the Jewish nation and to the rest of the world. You recall, we spoke about the false messiahs. One of the proofs that Rambam cites against the false messiah in Yemen is the fact that Messiah must rise in the land of Israel, cannot come from outside the land of Israel, and then move it inwardly. And the sources, just as an aside, the sources tell us a very nice idea as to why Messiah must arise in Tiberias. The Talmud indicates that, well, if that's where the Sanhedrin ended, that's where it must be restarted. But there's another idea that's featured in the literature, and that is that the chief rabbi of Tiberias was Rabbi Meir, who was the primary author of the Mishnah. And Rabbi Meir is of the opinion that even when the Jewish nation is not performing the will of God, we are nevertheless considered the sons of God, so to speak. There's an opinion that says that, well, when the Jewish people are up to snuff, when we are behaving properly, then we're considered like children, so to speak, of God. But when we're not, then we're not children. Rabbi Meir says that even when we're not up to snuff, we are nevertheless considered children, so to speak, of God. And because Tiberius is his city, in his city, his rules apply. And thus, Tiberius is the one place where we can have this restoration of this relationship with the Almighty, even if we're not really worthy of it, because we are still considered children of God, even if we're not behaving as such. But that is still true. That designation is still true in the city of Rabbi Meir, in the city of Tiberius. Now, the final item that I want to address today is the relationship between the modern state of Israel and Messiah. It seems very clear to me that we will not have a resolution to the Arab-Israeli conflict, at least until Messiah. Maybe that's his job. Maybe they're placeholders for Messiah. But regarding the, the, the central question, how do we view the seismic development of the establishment of a robust, of a flourishing Jewish state in the land of Israel in the context of Messiah? Part of Messiah is coming back to the land. 
Well, that happened to a large extent. And we have a, a powerful, robust, bustling country in the land, but it's very secular. And it was built by heretics. And it was built by atheists. Ben-Gurion, the founding father, he was an expert in Tanakh, but he ate pork. We know that for sure. He did not fast in Yom Kippur. Herzl, the great visionary behind the modern Zionist movement, he was totally estranged from Torah and religion. His own son, he did not even circumcise. Are these the kinds of people that are going to play a role in effectuating Messiah? That's really hard to believe. Moreover, the early Zionists committed documented crimes against religion. They took deliberate steps to try to eliminate religion amongst the emigres. And there's a lot of very shameful stories where they, they cut off all the payas and they told them, hey, listen, now you're in the state of Israel, you don't need to have religion. And there's a lot of very sad episodes. You know, dur- during the Holocaust, one of the great Zionist leaders said, I'd rather spend money to buy a cow to plow the land here in Palestine than to use that money to save a Jew from Warsaw. Another quipped that the state of Israel will be built on the ashes of the millions who perish in Europe. So it's very hard for us to accept the idea that these people are going to in any way play a role in Messiah. But by golly, look what they pulled off. It's a miracle. It's an economic superpower, military superpower, technology superpower, very robust and developed. And it's also, dare I say, a Torah superpower. Religious Jewry in Israel is very strong and stronger than it's been in a very long time. In the land of Israel, there has been a veritable explosion of Torah study in Avishivos. There's incredible spiritual dynamism that's existing alongside a very secular state. So how do we view this development in the context of Messiah? It's a very difficult question. It's a very political question. It's a very controversial and hotly debated one. Now, an element of this question is how much religious significance do we ascribe to the significant events of the state? The founding, Yom Ha'atzmaut, is that a religious holiday or not? Yom Yerushalayim, the day of the reunification of Jerusalem, six-day war. Is that a religious celebration? Or does that call for a religious celebration? Must we say halal as we do by other festivals? This is not agreed upon. Just this year, in our shul in Houston, the custom of the shul is that on these days, they recite the halal, the, the, the special prayers that are recited on festivals and special occasions. That's the custom. And thus, the day, the, the prayers that we say on a typical day, the, the Tachanun prayers, are omitted. That's the custom in our shul. I was there, and the following phenomenon happened. The shul is saying, Halal, the chazan, the leader of the minion of the, of the prayer, is saying Halal. And someone on the other side of the shul is reciting Tachanon out loud, as if protesting the recitation of the halal. Now, I think it does show poor judgment. You know, if this is the custom of the shul, maybe if you don't like it, pray elsewhere, daven elsewhere, or move. But this is emblematic of the very strong and unresolved disagreements that exist in this question. 
How much do we recognize? How much do we embrace? How much do we celebrate the modern state of Israel, the secular state of Israel? And what is its placement in our understanding of Messiah? I have another memory of a different event that happened in a shul, in a, in a synagogue. This one is not in Houston, but where I grew up in Muncie, New York. It was during the Second Lebanon War, 06. And this was a shul that did not say Halal on Yom Atzmaut or Yom Yerushalayim. But during the war, when Jews, Jewish soldiers, are in Lebanon and are dying every day, they made a decision to recite the special prayer for the well-being of the Israeli soldiers. And there was a long-time participant in the shul, when they started to make that announcement, that prayer for the Israeli soldiers, this individual got up, marched out of the shul, and never re-entered it. Why? Because there are some people, very reputable people, who believe that not only is the state of Israel not a positive development, it's a negative development. To simplify it, there are three general camps. Of course, there's a lot of nuance that we are missing. And maybe we can have a standalone discussion about this some other time. But in general, I would say that there are three general camps. You have on one side the religious Zionists. And they say, well, the state is a stage, is a step towards Messiah. It's the beginning. It's the flowering. It's the first step the uh, practical step of Messiah. And they have a good argument. Hey, when the miracles, when the prophecies happen exactly as they are forecasted, as they are foretold in the Torah, why would you think it's something else, not what the Torah foretold? We have prophecies that came true. Okay. Why should we ignore that? Why should we reject that? That's one opinion that says that the state of Israel is a step towards Messiah. There is the opposite opinion, most, I would say, most associated with the Satmer group of Hasidic Jews. And they view the state as being counterproductive. That not only doesn't advance the cause of Messiah, it actually detracts from Messianic progress. And it needs to be uprooted. And if there are miracles, that's because those are the acts of the Satan. The Satan wants the state to flourish. Because the state stands in opposition to Messiah. And this camp does not recognize the state, does not participate in any matters. The state won't vote, won't recognize it at all. Now, I don't consider myself an expert in any of these opinions, but to my understanding, this idea, the, the idea of opposition to Zionism, opposition to the state of Israel, is a central element of this community. And they believe that the spiritual cause of the Holocaust was Zionism. And Zionism and the modern state of Israel is preventing Messiah from coming. They won't go to places that have the flag of Israel prominently displayed. They won't go to even the Western Wall, to the Kotel, because it is under the hegemony, under the sovereignty of the secular Zionist state. That is, I would say, the complete opposite opinion of the religious Zionists. And then you have lots of different flavors in the middle. Those argue that maybe take a wait-and-see approach, participate, but maybe at a safe distance, not to take ministerial positions, for example, but to use the state to advance the cause of Torah, 
there are those that talk about how the state can be transformed into something which can bring about Messiah. There is an opinion that says that, the, well, the Talmud, the Talmud says that no sage can render halachic rulings accurately unless they first stumble. There always has to be a little bit of stumbling before there can be success. And maybe the modern secular state of Israel is the stumbling that is needed before it can be transformed, repurposed, refashioned into something which is the beginning of the flowering or is contributing towards the flowering of Messiah. There is this idea that maybe even though the state was founded by secular anti-religious forces, maybe it can be taken over from within demographically and otherwise the nation can be transformed and be progressively changed. And, you know, we, we do see some indications of that actually happening. But it is definitely undeniable that the state does contribute towards the preparation of the nations for Messiah. We internally may have a lot of disputes about how exactly you know, the state fits in with the messianic vision. But the world definitely views it as a miracle and as a development that has messianic significance. And again, this is a very controversial subject and one which we don't really have a clear and undeniable and incontrovertible resolution. Now, there are other subjects that are unresolved. Ten Lost Tribes, for example, are they coming back? There's a dispute in the Mishnah at the end of the book of Sanhedrin. One opinion says that the ten lost tribes that were sent into exile will not come back. Another opinion says that they will come back. We don't know. But that really wraps up our discussion of Messiah. And I will end with the following point. I sense everything I've learned, everything I've seen, everything that I can feel, the sense that I get is that this is around the corner. It's imminent. And we have a role to play. And people may wonder, you know, today we believe that there is a concept of degradation of generations, that over the course of time, you know, compare us to the Gona Vilna, to the Baal Shem Tov, to uh, the Arizal, to the Rambam, to Rashi, going back to Rabbi Tiva and his friends and the authors of the Talmud and going back to the prophets. We're so small spiritually compared to them. So how can we aspire to effectuate Messiah when the veritable angels of yore were unsuccessful? And there are a variety of ideas, of answers. The Arizal himself told his student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, that we're incomparable to the earlier generations. But just as our spiritual level has been so thoroughly diminished compared to the earlier generations, by that same token, any small mitzvah that we do notwithstanding our diminished spiritual state, it's actually more powerful than the mitzvahs of our great antecedents. Notwithstanding the fact that we are so low and so spiritually depressed, we still do a mitzvah. And thus, our deeds are amplified. And thus, we should not underestimate, we should not underestimate how powerful our righteousness and our repentance can be. And again, repentance, that is the key lever that we have to bring about Messiah. The Chavetz Chaim, a blessed memory, used to say that there is a certain progressive nature to the building of Messiah. We have to rectify, we have to fix, and we have to achieve, we have to accomplish 
And there's very, very, very little that's left for us to do. So yes, our comparative ability and righteousness and, and, and spiritual acuity is much lower than our antecedents, but our job is much smaller. Another idea. This is a, a, a few, there's a few points that are needed for this idea to be understood. Messiah is a time that there is no desire. Meaning, the Yetzirah is eliminated, and therefore our ability to accomplish is curtailed because we face no resistance. And thus, for us, well, for the righteous, they are personally better off in a non-Messiah world. And as we mentioned in the past, for them to desire Messiah is an act of sacrifice. But the Chavetz Chaim tells us that the Almighty will benefit us in righteous generations. He will say, you know what? Let it rip. There's no crisis. Let the nation have the resistance of the Yitzharah and be able to accomplish greater things. And let me not end this it's a time of spiritual prosperity. Let me not end it with Messiah. But now that things have gotten so bad, and real righteous people of the caliber of our antecedents are, are vanishingly rare, now we're not losing so much with Messiah. And therefore, maybe now it's a more propitious time for Messiah. But regardless, the sources maintain the Messiah will come in a generation that's potentially righteous or potentially even wicked. And our generation would certainly qualify. And again, it seems like it's around the corner. And I hope our study of this subject has given us a deeper appreciation of what we have to look forward to. Again, it's a principle of faith. Rambam says, if you reject Messiah, you reject all of Torah. You have no place in the framework of our religion. The essence of our nation, it was founded by Abraham to bring God into the world, to call out in the name of God, to make the world know about God. That is what Messiah is all about. If someone does not believe in it, if someone does not anticipate it, Messiah. If someone does not contribute towards that, how can we say they have a role in the nation? How, how can they be an heir to Abraham? The essence of our nation is to try to effectuate Messiah. And again, what we can do is repentance. Let us hope that we will be witnesses to Messiah. May it come speedily in our days And may we be prepared for that grand transformation of the entire world. Next up, we have the 13th principle of resurrection of the dead. I'm looking forward to dig into that with y'all. And as always, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I am looking forward to hearing from you to hearing your questions, your comments, and your feedback.